Please turn with me, if you will, to God's Word, to the New Testament. We come now to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We believe that these are not just the words of men, that these are God's words. So let's pray that we might understand. Gracious God, thank you for blessing us with your Spirit, who helps us understand your Word Would we be willing listeners and students tonight? Would we humbly receive? And would we leave this place with deeper understanding of heavenly truths of who our Savior is? We thank you for your word. We ask that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, the passage that is commonly called the triumphal entry from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As Americans, many of us are, are very interested and intrigued by the British monarchy. There's a coronation in May, King Charles III, and many Americans will watch with great interest. But even as a Brit, the monarchy has very little power. When we, especially as Americans, if we turn off the TV, we can... Walk away. Our lives are no different by the fact that King Charles is king. Not even in the least. But the next time you're interested in the charm of royalty, you can turn on your computer or TV and watch an episode of The Crown or tune in to the latest news with the royal family. Jesus isn't that kind of convenient, distant king. We're going to see in our passage today that he comes into Jerusalem with praise that is due to him as the king coming into Jerusalem. And we see that his reign doesn't keep its distance. It is an interruption to our lives. It changes things. So we're going to really look at, we're going to approach this in two parts today. First, we're going to look at the mounting tensions throughout the story. And then we're going to look at the theology of Jesus as the king. The mounting tensions that build throughout the story, and then we're going to look at the theology of Jesus as the king. 
Let's look at the first mounting of tension. And this comes in verse 1 as they are across the valley from Jerusalem up on the Mount of Olives. 11.1 starts with an ominous phrase, they drew near to Jerusalem. You'll remember this is a big deal because the crowd was amazed and they were afraid because Jesus was so intently headed to Jerusalem in chapter 10. Because they anticipate that Jesus is going to be that Messiah who, who brings a revolution and overthrows the Roman government. So they're afraid of what's coming. And Mark says they drew near to Jerusalem. The tension's building. But remember, Jesus had foretold that when he comes to Jerusalem, he was going to be killed. Remember the undertones of Jesus' ascent to the throne in Jerusalem when Bartimaeus called him the son of David in last week's passage. In other words, it's all been building to this. What is going to happen when the king comes to Jerusalem? First, he comes to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is, has a phenomenal view over the city of Jerusalem, especially the, city, the, the Temple Mount. It's just east of the city. And it's more than just a good view. It also carries eschatological, that's a fancy word of saying, end time significance for Jesus' reign. In Zechariah 14, it says, The Lord will go out and fight against the nations, and his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Mount of Olives is where Jesus stands in our passage. And he has a plan for how he's going to enter Jerusalem. He's worked out the details. And he's about to come into Jerusalem. So let's look now at how he approaches Jerusalem. And in his approach, the tension is going to mount even higher. He could have walked in the way most pilgrims do at the time of Passover. It's time of Passover. They're on their way into the city. He could have walked. But we find he decided instead to ride a colt. Now, colts, especially unused colts, Jesus said this was an, one that nobody had ever sat on. They were reserved for sacred uses. Jesus also exercised this royal privilege of, it's called impressment, according to the histor historians. It's this the sense where Jesus can actually lay claim on that colt with his authority as king, kind of like eminent domain. The city can come in and claim just because they have the authority. Jesus has a similar authority because this authority goes all the way back to Genesis. The scepter of Judah, that is the reign of the line of Judah. The scepter of Judah will not depart according to Genesis 49. And there's a mention of a cult there as they're talking about the scepter of Judah not departing from that promised line. And then specifically, we see Solomon's coronation where he rode King David's mule, his colt, in 1 Kings 1. This is not an entry of weakness. It's an entry of humility, but it is not one of weakness because Solomon had great wealth and great military power. It seems that Jesus had made arrangements, most likely, with the owner of the donkey. After all, he, after all, he had a large following. Many were coming with him from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And so when he tells his disciples to go and find this donkey, he probably has made arrangements with the owner. But the question is, who, who's being referenced here when it says the Lord has need of it? 
And why were these people so quick to say, okay, fine, take the colt? Well, the Lord could refer to the owner that Jesus had prearrangement with, could refer to God, or could refer to Jesus. Jesus' fame had spread so wide at this point that there may have been implicit in seeing Jesus' disciples, as the disciples say the Lord needs it, a willing surrender of the cults. It shows that Jesus was intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 says specifically that your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. And look at what this king has prophesied to bring. Joy, righteousness, salvation, humility, and an eternal kingship. The true enemy isn't Rome. The true enemy isn't Egypt or Assyria. The true enemy is Satan. And in acquiring this cult, the story went exactly as Jesus had described it would. Mark actually gives a lot of space here, describing the details of how it would go and then the details of how it exactly went to show exactly that Jesus had told them in detail how it would be. And Peter, being an eyewitness, recalled these details because he, was, he too was impressed by the detail and specifically by the fact that Jesus would call in a cult to ride into town because of its connection with the, with the king. And it's not just the cult that helps the tension mount here as they expect great things from this entrance, but it's also what they do to the road. They put their cloaks down and their greenery on the road. These are all signs of honor. John tells us specifically that they put palm branches down. No matter what they spread, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of honor for somebody who is highly ranked and has great authority. To a lesser extent in our culture, it would be like putting out a red carpet for a celebrity or flower petals before the bride passes down the aisle. This is that on a grand scale. Back in 2 Kings 9, Jehu was, was crowned. And it says, In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king! To take off your cloak, to cover the ground, is a sign of honor, of crowning the king, acknowledging his authority. And then what they cried, what they said, helps the tension mount even further. The expectations are growing for what Jesus is going to do as he enters the city. Because they quote Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna literally means save us. Now, they may not have meant it in that sense. You know how words change their meaning. It may have just been a a cry of exaltation, but either way, it is lifting and exalting this one who is riding into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, their king. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This in particular from Psalm 118, verse 26, comes from a psalm called a Hallel an Egyptian Hallel in particular, and it's called Egyptian because it, re- it recalls the fact that Egypt was free, excuse me, Israel was freed from Egypt. It's a sign of the Exodus. These were the Psalms that the pilgrims would sing during a major feast like the Feast of Tabernacles or Pentecost or the first day of Passover. And that's where we find ourselves leading up to Passover. 
These Psalms, especially 118, they recall the Exodus and they also anticipate a second Exodus for Israel. They're waiting for something greater, even greater than coming out of Egypt. They expect, unfortunately, however, a worldly governmental redemption. This is such a low expectation. It's a thin understanding of the Old Testament promises because we're going to see that Jesus is going to fulfill not just that expectation for an exodus. He's going to fulfill something so much greater. He is going to lead his people out of the grip of death, an exodus from sin and the curse. And they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. This also has Old Testament roots, and it comes from Ezekiel 37, this messianic expectation. There's great promise of the descent of David's eternal rule, King David from the Old Testament, Jesus from his line, this this one who comes from David's line is establishing God's people in their land, and God will set his presence among his people. And here that is, Jesus, the presence of God himself, there with his people. He's the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's the descendant of David, establishing his people in an eternal inheritance, not some temporary nationalistic military revolution. And he's establishing his people in an eternal inheritance throughout the whole earth, which is all his, and which he will restore on that last day. This is more than just the expectation of the Messiah coming. We're going to see Jesus is the divine Messiah. The son of God, as Mark tells us in the very beginning. There is great expectation. It's hard to detail how much weight rides on this expectation of the king coming into Jerusalem. The kingdom of our father David is arriving. Solomon wrote in in on King David's mule. And there in 1 Kings 35, it says, He shall come and shall sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. Then I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And that's exactly what Jesus is coming to do, to rule over his people. He is the fulfillment of all the splendor of Israel's kingdoms. He is the pinnacle. If David was a man after God's own heart, Jesus is incomparably more faithful to the Father. He and the Father are one. If Solomon was the richest and wisest of the kings, Jesus owns the entirety of creation, and he is wisdom incarnate. If Josiah was a king that purified the land in biblical faithfulness, Jesus is the far greater king who will purify the whole world by his own righteousness. We've used a lot of Old Testament references in the last few minutes. That's really important. Because Jesus riding into Jerusalem is not some fly-by-night guy trying to get people to follow him. He is fulfilling God's word, Old Testament prophecy, things that are rooted in God's plan of salvation. There was a couple years ago, Um, Up until a couple years ago, uh, there was this man in Siberia who called himself Jesus of Siberia. He led a cult for a few decades. Just a couple years ago, he was arrested. He claimed new revelation. He founded the Church of the Last Testament. He was trying to create his own new reign. Jesus is doing exactly not that. 
Because all the promises of God's plan of redemption are coming to fruition here. This is not a new thing. This is rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a flash in the pan. He is the king from eternity past. The pre-existent God of the universe. And here the tension comes to its highest point. In verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem. Here's what everything has been waiting for. What is going to happen? When this man, who has been teaching with great authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, what is going to happen when he steps foot in Jerusalem? Is Rome going down? Are the Pharisees going to be replaced with a new religious institution? Where does Jesus go? He doesn't go to David's throne. He doesn't come to Herod's palace. He doesn't lead a band of revolutionaries against the Roman oppression. And he entered Jerusalem, Mark tells us, and went into the temple. Jesus' real reign comes by his spiritual victory. He's not coming to beat Rome His real conquering enthronement comes not in any nationalistic or even a religious institutional sense. It comes in something so much greater, in his cosmic victory over Satan. We're going to return to that in a moment. But coming to the temple is important because he now is the true temple. The presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel, that is Jesus entering this temple of anticipation, this Old Testament temple that was awaiting Jesus. And here is the fulfillment stepping in to the place where they have been waiting for God's presence because 400 years prior, God's presence had departed and had not returned until this moment. The temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, we're going to find next week, has become a place of buying and selling to market day for human financial advancement rather than a sanctuary for the prayer and for the worship of God but we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week. What does Jesus do when he comes to the temple? He says he looks around. He's not just like a tourist, checking out the sites, taking pictures. That's not what he's doing. When he comes and he looks around, he's looking around actually in judgment. Jesus has looked around in the book of Mark a handful of times already. In chapter 3, verse 5, he looked around at the Pharisees with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. In chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus looked around as he's identifying his true family. He says, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? These are my mothers and brothers and sisters, judging the hardness of heart of his own blood family. In chapter 10, Jesus looked around immediately after the rich man left, sorrowful after the rich man was unwilling to give up his grasp on the world's goods, and the disciples were confused. Who then can be saved? And then here, Jesus is looking around, and we'll find out next week that he responds in judgment by purifying the temple that he looks around. Before we move into looking at the theology of this passage, we we see the tension mounting. See, then he comes into the the temple. Let's look at our our lives. What does this mean for us? First of all, it it teaches us Jesus is not a distant king who's going to be content to keep a distance 
Jesus has come to bring salvation and to eradicate evil. To eradicate evil. We look around in the world around us. We see evil in the world around us and we grieve. Jesus is the king who can deal with that. The world says, don't ever say no to yourself. But we know we are to say no to ourselves and yes to Christ's kingdom. So Jesus comes as the king for the evil in the world around us, but we also see Jesus comes to reign and to conquer and to subdue even the evil that is within us. Even the evil that is deeply seated in our thoughts and in our hearts and our desires and our actions. Jesus hasn't come to give you a purpose and help you fulfill it. He hasn't come to help propel you to great success in your own kingdom. He hasn't come to help you make yourself a better person. He hasn't, but he, he has come to be your king. A king with authority who gives decrees for you to obey. To have complete authority over the depths of your soul and the minutia of your energies and the direction of your life. He is the king and he is benevolent. He will rule with mercy and with compassion, with gracious decrees that teach us how to properly live under his gracious kingship. But that is not at the expense of his authority. Let's look at how this theology is developed in Mark and then further into the New Testament. At the very beginning, when Jesus was baptized, he then began proclaiming the gospel. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. From the very beginning, he's been talking about the kingdom of God. That is first and foremost. And how, did his, how was his kingship evidenced throughout his ministry? Well, you, you can see him casting out demons, pushing back darkness, pushing back the curse of death and disease in the lives of individuals who have faith in him. He confronts false religious claims and he draws the hearts of the unexpected followers. These are all spiritual moves. He's not trying to overthrow any institution. He's not trying to gain earthly power. His kingdom is spiritual. So far in the book of Mark. Spoiler alert, here in a few chapters, Jesus is going to die on the cross right outside Jerusalem. And we're going to read about it when we come to the supper here shortly. But that's where we see his kingdom come in its fullness. Casting out not just demons, but there he casts down the prince of demons, Satan. He conquers Satan on the cross. And he doesn't just push back against the curse of death and disease. He takes on that curse and eradicates that curse from his people, becoming the curse in his body on the tree. And he displays that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to the Father except through him. And then he unites the hearts of his believers to God for eternity. That is spiritual victory. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king of kings is going to protect and defend all those who look to him in faith. That's a great comfort. We're all looking for security. We look around to the world around us. We, we think that there are things uh, in the world that are going to uh, give us assurance but there is no other so-called king that can truly protect us. Any other king, even if it's yourself, is going to disappoint and collapse and ultimately devour you. 
But for those who trust in Jesus with their everything, those who have thrown off their cloak as blind Bartimaeus did, as when they let go of their grip on the world and when they cling to Jesus alone and they follow him on the way, they receive the benefits of his power and of his security. And they begin to care about his glory and his fame and his reign. They begin to seek first his kingdom. And we realize we're not battling earthly territory as we follow this king and as we're welcomed into his kingship. This is a spiritual battle. And he does continue to reign in our lives, in the hearts of his people, by killing sin, by eradicating our sinful actions and our desires, and by growing us in holiness to become more and more like him. That's what his reign looks like in our lives. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's king over his believers. Let's be content with the reigning that he intends to do. He's not here to try to help you throw off your oppressive boss or domineering authority. He's not here necessarily to conquer poverty or perpetual financial insecurity even. He doesn't promise victory in court against injustice. There's no promise of defeating any earthly enemy. Not until his next return. There is a promise, though, that he's going to put to death your sinful self. He'll help you put to death the deeds of the flesh. There is the promise that you're no longer ruled by the chains of death or the guilt of sin, that you are free from that bondage. There is the promise of protection from your ultimate enemy under the shadow of our Savior's wings, our King. There is the promise that you have begun life eternal under the direction and authority of the most benevolent, gracious, loving King of Righteousness. There is no promise of happiness, but there is promise of holiness because that's what our king is about. And it's so much greater than these earthly kingdoms that we want him to promote for us. But we have to remember, we're not servants of the king for this short earthly life only. He's going to be king for eternity. Jesus' coming kingship is glorious. And he, his kingdom will come when he returns. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we ask for it, yes, here today, but we also anticipate that last day when he comes again. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 19 paints a beautiful picture of this return. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. A few verses later, John tells us in Revelation 20, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus has conquered Satan on the cross and he will cast him into the lake of fire on that day where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But we also have to 
ask ourselves, how far is that rain going to come into the lives of people? Because also on that great day, there will be judgment before the great white throne for every person. And all the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne with the books open before them, we see in Revelation 20. Verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was also thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is coming with great authority. And he will reign over every soul. Whether or not they choose to submit to him, whether or not they say, well, that's not my truth, does not matter. He is objectively king and will reign for eternity. His kingship will envelop the entirety of the world, physical, spiritual, in the heavenly places and on the earth below in the new creation. There's also good news. When he reigns, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, nor pain. Jesus will reign. His enemies will be cast into the lake of fire, but all those who look to him in faith, who accept this king who came humbly riding on a donkey, they are the ones who will be the beneficiaries of his complete and total reign. Let's not be content to think of Jesus as a distant king with occasional influence. Let's let him interfere with our earthly kingship in our own lives. Let's let him dismantle our own thrones so that he might set up his kingship and give us life. Believe in him. Give him control of your thoughts and your heart, your head, your hands, and have confidence that the king of kings will intercede for you today in the throne room of the father and will advocate for you on that day of judgment and will bring you to reign with him when he comes to the new Jerusalem in power on that glorious day. And then there's no more fear. Because when he comes and reigns, we will only receive what is good. We will receive his blessings and enter that blessed eternal life with him forever. And so we can say confidently, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who are we that you would welcome us into your kingdom? We praise you that you have shown us Jesus Christ, the king who rode into Jerusalem on that day, who will return with all authority and power. Would we place our faith in him alone? Would we let him rule over every bit of our hearts and minds and lives? We need your spirit's help. Would he awaken us? Show us where we have yet to surrender to this king, knowing that he is a good king who will reign and give us life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.